What does filmed for IMAX mean? It isn't just a movie that'll look great on IMAX's screens. It means that hiding from a sandstorm feels like fear in every flicker. And every triumph is felt in every sound wave. And the things we've only imagined, you can truly experience those too. That's what filmed for IMAX means. Get tickets to Experience Dune Part 2 now and IMAX's exclusive expanded aspect ratio. This episode is brought to you by Paramount+. Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount+. Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG-13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. You are listening to the Next Best Picture podcast, and this is our review of Ant-Man and the Wasp, Quantum Mania. You're an interesting man, Scott Lang. You're an Avenger. You have a daughter, but you've lost a lot of time, like me. We can help each other with that. Who are you? I'm the man who can give you the one thing you want. What's that? Time. It can rewrite existence and shatter timelines. You cannot trust him. I don't care who this guy is. I just lost so much. He can give us a second chance. Let me make this easy for you. You will bring me what I need. Or everything you call life will end. not want her to watch this. We had a deal. You thought you could win. I don't have to win. We both just have to lose. I'm sorry, Cassie. Alright everybody, you were just listening to the trailer for Ant-Man and the Wasp, Quantum Mania, and the story is as follows. Ant-Man and the Wasp find themselves exploring the quantum realm, interacting with strange new creatures, and embarking on an adventure that pushes them beyond the limits of what they thought was possible. The film is starring Paul Rudd, Evangeline Lilly, Jonathan Majors, Michelle Pfeiffer, Michael Douglas, Catherine Newton, David Dasmalchian, William Jackson Harper, Katie O'Brien, and Bill Murray. It is directed by Peyton Reed and written by Jeff Loveness. Here to join me today for this podcast review, I have Meredith Loftus. Aspen Robbins always finds out. <laughs> Daniel Howitt. Hello, hello. Cody Derricks. Hi. And Isaiah Washington. Hey, what's happening? 
Okay, so Ant-Man and the Wasp Quantum Mania, the third standalone Ant-Man film within the MCU. At this point, the film that right now is changing the trajectory for Kevin Feige's Marvel Cinematic Universe, as this is the beginning of Phase 5. Introducing the new big bad for the Cinematic Universe in Kang the Conqueror, played by Jonathan Majors here while also continuing the story of a lot of these standalone characters who we don't often get a chance to see in the crossover films that much. Paul Rudd, of course, as Ant-Man, has appeared in some of the Avengers team-up movies and in Captain America Civil War, but we don't really get much of Michael Douglas or uh, Evangeline Lilly. Catherine Newton is uh, a new addition here as she plays an older Cassie. Michelle Pfeiffer just barely showed up at the end of Ant-Man and the Wasp. So in a lot of ways... Ant-Man and the Wasp Quantum Mania is both representing a continuation while also forging a new path. And there is a contrast here, I think, in regards to how the other Ant-Man movies were initially positioned within the MCU versus this one. A lot is being placed on this little guy's shoulders here. Uh, the reactions to it have definitely been more divisive than ever before, I think, for a Marvel film. And we've come to a very, very interesting point, I think, just overall in the grand scheme of what is the direction for the MCU? To, not even about phases, just what's the direction in general? And then, of course, you have all these additions to Disney Plus with the TV shows. And it's further complicating a lot of things, I think, for a lot of people. So... I know we all have kind of like mixed feelings overall about the movie, about the direction of this franchise, about how this fits within the overall grand plan of the MCU. But hey, at least for once, we got to spend some time in the quantum realm, an area that we've heard so much about before and seen glimpses of. Here we get a whole two hour long movie in there. So what did we all think? Let's start us off first with Cody Derrick's. Okay, here we are. It's another Marvel movie. Um, you know, it, I, I do this to myself. I've been on a lot of these Marvel podcasts for Next Best Picture, so this is of my own doing. But yet again, I'm here to be a kind of just apathetic, maybe a little bit depressed voice of criticism against a Marvel movie. You know, they're kind of like taxes or a like blackhead on your nose. You just have to deal with it. And it's like kind of annoying, but not the end of the world in terms of the cinematic light landscape. And every now and then there's some good ones, but this unfortunately is not one of them. Um, I found like a lot of Marvel movies. It kind of wants credit for doing something bold and imaginative, but doesn't quite have the capacity to pull it off a hundred percent. And in this case, it is the completely void of imagination realm of the quantum realm and to your point matt this has been teased for a while both visually and with the characters talking about it it's this new world that's below ours and we can explore it and have all sorts of new fun characters and friends to make along the way and it just kind of looks like ugly space it is just nothing impressive to me <laughs> it just has spaceships and it behaves exactly like earth does you know there's like the gravity's the same the fire looks the same it sounds the same it just kind of is another place for these characters to run around and the movie spends the entire length of its runtime there and it sorry looks really ugly like i said it is just dimly lit and unimaginatively designed um there's some cool creature designs i'll give it that but they are mostly not well executed if they're mostly cgi um 
the funny thing is I'm kind of just mixed on this movie. I can't even be fully negative because it doesn't really give me enough to be negative about. It is kind of just there. I think Jonathan Majors makes an imposing villain. He's not doing anything groundbreaking. He's kind of doing an aloof acting choice, which is interesting. He's kind of more in line with Thanos in terms of uh, performance style. You know, he's very like, he's not screaming. He's more kind of just intimidating. And that's smart. And he is genuinely an imposing, intimidating figure. You do actually fear his abilities and what he can do. And a lot of that is because of the gravitas that Majors is bringing to this performance as he does with all his performances. But overall, this is just kind of another two hours out of my life that are just gone and I'll never get back. Okay. Let's hear next now from Isaiah Washington. Isaiah, what did you think of Ant-Man and the Wasp Quantum Mania? So, of course, um, I have had an appreciation for the Ant-Man films. I thought the first movie was a really solid heist film. I thought the second one was a very underrated uh, sequel that had this very small scale compared to the other MCU films. I'm... In anticipation for Ant-Man Quantumania, I, I really wasn't that excited for this movie leading up. As a matter of fact, uh, I deliberately went to go see this movie in 4DX to, in hopes that it would amp up what I knew would probably be eventually an okay film. And that's kind of what I got. I got an okay film. I really feel like a lot of this movie has lost its touch with the grounded neighborhood level stakes aspects that the previous Ant-Man films had. Uh, I wasn't a fan of some of the directorial choices, some of the writing choices as well within some of these characters, how they're treated, how they're dealt with. Uh, I, uh, I, I I think Catherine Newton is a really talented actress who's been in some really good, interesting roles within different films, best picture level of films, like three billboards. But I think she is miscast in this film. I do not feel the chemistry as much with her and her father played by Paul Rudd, who's, you know, Paul Rudd, he's doing what Paul Rudd normally does. He's doing pretty good work. I will say though, on a positive note, Jonathan Majors and Michelle Pfeiffer, everything that they're given is fabulous. I think they are carrying this film. All of the best moments of this film are between them or whenever they are on screen. I think the world building of the quantum realm is creative enough. Not the most creative world building I've seen in the MCU, but it, it does enough to where I think this makes this a perfectly okay film but definitely bottom tier mcu for me okay 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 meredith loftus what did you think of ant-man and the wasp quantum mania yeah um as isaiah had said i am also a fan of the previous two ant-man movies i think that the first ant-man movie was such a fun heist uh especially coming after Age of Ultron and kind of like the tone of that movie. It was a nice like refresher and change of pace to end phase two movies. And so for me going into Ant-Man and the Wasp Quantumania, like I actually did have lower expectations, uh, like how it could kick off phase five because of, you know, it, it its placement previously and how like so much of that, those movies are smaller scale, no pun intended. 
And also too, like last year's MCU movies were kind of hit or miss. So I really kept my expectations pretty low. Um, That said, I was prepared for a different Ant-Man movie, but I wasn't expecting to still really enjoy it. Um, I really, really like this movie. I wouldn't say that I love it or it's in my top tier of uh, Marvel's movies because there have been so many. I really wasn't expecting not only the humor to hold up for me, but also to see how this is kicking off a new phase and setting up stakes moving forward, but also uh, carrying over a lot of thematic stuff that have, that has happened across the Ant-Man trilogy. I really love the dynamics between Scott and Cassie's, between them finally now having time to for Scott to be in Cassie's life, and that's just been such a hurdle for him. And ever since he got out of prison. Um, I love the stuff with Janet um, and her history with the quantum realm. As Isaiah said, like some of the best scenes in the movie had to do with Michelle Pfeiffer. And knowing that Peyton Reed, like specifically had her in mind to play Janet Van Dyne, it shows here in Ant-Man and the Lost Quantumanium. Like Cody said, like visually, I was not impressed by the quantum realm. This is something that has been teased for a while, but unfortunately, it didn't leave a lot to the imagination. Um, I also thought the Freedom Fighter subplot was like, I don't know, a little, it didn't hold as much weight as it could have, you know, um, as being part of the destruction that Kang has been causing down there all this time. Um, I also take uh, issue with the way that they there was such a focus on Hank and, uh, or the, there was such a focus on the ant family, but they kind of put Hank Pym and Hope Van Dyne in the, Dyne in the backseat a bit um, in favor of Janet, which I loved, but I feel like there was a way that they could have like spread the wealth there a bit. And I also do miss Michael Pena and just those characters that we love from, the original Ant-Man movies and uh, I missed uh, Louise's, you know, signature style of storytelling and just like how that was such a distinctive part of these Ant-Man movies. So missing that was kind of a bummer, but all in service for introducing Jonathan Majors as Kang, which I really liked this variance version of uh, who Kang is. And I like that we get to see these different styles of, Jonathan Major of like every time we see him in the MCU I feel like we're going to see something different and I really loved uh, his commanding and intimidating force here. Last but not least I will say that I was not expecting to enjoy Corey Stoll as MODOK. That was not on my bingo card but here we are. I just love the insanity of MODOK and I also like thematically how he has so much more uh, conflict with Scott and with Cassie and like that would carry over from the first Ant-Man movie to here and I thought it worked really well I know MODOK didn't work for a lot of people but here I am defending him so uh yeah those are on the whole I really enjoyed this movie it stuck the landing in a lot of ways and I feel like it is the the bar has been set now for where we're heading towards Kang Dynasty and Secret Wars at the end of this new saga. And I'm very excited to see what Kevin Feige does from here. 
And last but not least, Daniel Howitt. So I'm in a funny position with Quantumania. Um, I essentially love every Marvel movie or like every Marvel movie to some degree. Like there are some that I love. There are some that I like and some that I like less. But even something like Eternals to me isn't garbage. It's just it's just fine. Um, and with the first two Ant-Man movies, I actually like them less than most people seem to. Um, I feel like those are like kind of rated high for a lot of people in terms of their Marvel films. Uh, but for me, they're they're pretty low in my ranking of Marvel movies. But again, they're they're fine, and I, and I like them. So what's funny about that is Quantumania is actually my favorite of the three Ant-Man movies, um, despite the poor reception that it's getting. Um, I think it's fine. Not great, but fine. Um, I appreciated how weird it was for the most part. Uh, even compared to, to like the Guardians films, uh, this is probably the weirdest Marvel movie. And I think that's mostly a good thing. Um, you know, it brought something different. We certainly haven't had a broccoli guy in uh, a Marvel movie before. Uh, so, you know, yay, that's that's great. Um, you know, I, I it leaned into the, some of the sci-fi elements, which helped it feel closer to Guardians, uh, though not nearly as good, uh, to be clear. Uh, it felt closer to the to the Guardians films than than like earlier Ant-Man movies. Lots of the humor still flops, like most things with Modoc. I definitely want to talk m- more about that character. And I definitely agree with what everybody else has said. The visuals are are pretty rough overall. It's a pretty ugly movie. Uh, I agree with Cody. It's so dim that it's like weirdly dingy. But all that said, um, there are good things. There are bright spots here. Um, not visually, not literally, but the, there are some uh, metaphorical bright spots. Jonathan Majors is excellent uh you know he he's he's definitely underutilized here but there are some scenes where he was really shining um there's you know some flashback scenes with janet where he was so good that it kind of felt out of place in the movie i was like you're you're too authentic for for what you're acting right now for what you're supposed to be playing uh but i think that's a good good problem overall um, there are there are some interesting moments uh like like so scene where ant-man like piles on top of millions of versions of himself uh so it has some some interesting things going on uh overall there's not a lot memorable about this movie but there was enough fun action to keep me interested you know i keep hearing people describe this as an absolute disaster and i just don't see it that way i i see it as a weak marvel movie that still managed to entertain me overall and i left Left more positive than negative, uh, so so I did I did enjoy the movie, albeit hesitantly, uh, and uh, so yeah, I'm, I am positive overall. Now I am fascinated at whatever conversations must have been happening around Disney with both this film and Strange World happening at the same time. Bizarre choice to make both of those films at the exact same time, uh, but anyway, regardless, I think this movie is fine, not a disaster, but not memorable either. Okay, so I, in the preparation for Ant-Man Quantum Mania or Ant-Man and the Wasp Quantum Mania, this movie also forgets the Wasp too, so don't worry if you fudged the title there a little bit. Um, I rewatched the first and second film about a day before I went to go see this. I binge-watched them both back-to-back. Surprisingly, I actually really enjoyed Ant-Man and the Wasp more than I remembered, uh, despite the fact that I thought the villain in that film was very, very weak. I really liked the emotional story, the search for Janet, and how that was driving the characters forward. I think the first Ant-Man film is completely okay. Nothing special. But at the time, it wasn't positioned as such. He was 
considered a supporting character within the MCU. And yes, he got his own movie, but it was deliberately lower stakes, smaller in scale. And so now he's this pivotal centerpiece hero for introducing the new big bad of the MCU who's going to replace Thanos, essentially, and build up to this Kang Dynasty film. And so now they're positioning Scott Lang and his story as one of the most important in the franchise. Some of you are being way too nice right now. I'm just going to come out and say it like that first, first out of the gate. But, but, I am not in the completely hate it, this is trash, one of the worst movies I've ever seen, Camp Ivor. There is some good stuff here. I will concede to that. And I also want to say up front, because I've gotten a lot of shit for this over the last couple of months, so I want to just clear the air here. I think Thor Love and Thunder works as a kid's film, okay? That's all I'm saying. For the kids, it's silly, it's colorful, it's goofy, it works. This movie, I don't see it in that same vein. I, I don't, because there's a lot going on here in terms of this rebellion subplot, the introduction of Kang as this, you know, yeah, of course, he's a conqueror. I hate using that term. I want to use a different term here to describe him. But at the same time, that is what he is. And so it's, the storyline is, I think, a little bit supposed to be a little bit darker, a little bit more mature. The small scale of the Ant-Man films, I think, is definitely lost here. Whoever mentioned Michael Pena a minute ago, God, did I need him in this movie. He was a highlight of the first two films for me in so many ways, and I thought his presence was sorely missed here. And overall, I agree with the visual element. I don't know what's going on at this point. Is it just that the visual effects artists are being worked to the bone because there are so many Marvel movies that they have to work on that they are just pushing out subpar visual effects? I'll tell you this. Whenever I watch a trailer for these things on YouTube, on my phone, computer, whatever... I always say to myself, wow, like this looks visually good, but then why is it when I go to see it in a theater, it doesn't look good all of a sudden? Is it because the image has just been blown up? Is the projection off? I don't know what the answer is wholeheartedly because I'm just astounded sometimes why it is that like I look at these things uh, when the trailers drop and I go, oh, okay, well, that looks visually interesting. The quantum realm definitely looks like it's going to be fun to explore. And then we drop into the movie and... It's just so muddy and dark and uninteresting, visually speaking, that I don't know. I, I, I did not feel that the two-hour runtime was also sufficient enough for balancing all these characters and all these storylines. I also think this story lacks an incredible amount of substance. Yes, I know that there is this connection about lost time and making up for lost time, but that's been like kind of a through line uh, through the other two Ant-Man films. And here, I do think there is kind of this split, distinct first half where Kang is kind of just referenced and always alluded to, and his presence is kind of hanging over the first half of the movie. And then the second movie is just knockout, all-out war against Kang. And we're going to get into a spoiler section towards the end here. So for those of you uh, that are looking forward to us discussing a little bit more about what happens near the end of this film, don't worry. We'll get into that because I do have thoughts on that. I want to uh, get out. But for the time being right now, walking out of the theater, I was incredibly mixed on the movie. And in the days that have followed since, I have barely remembered a single thing about this movie. It has no staying power with me whatsoever. There's no emotional connection. The moments where they wanted me to feel something in this movie, I felt it with some characters, not others. 
And I just feel that moments of humor, even the action, the choreography in this movie, there's nothing about this that was entertaining me, uh, even compared to something like Black Panther, Wakanda Forever, which I thought had good action choreography and was pretty decent overall in that vein. So I don't want to say this is like a Star Wars knockoff, because I think that's actually maybe giving it a little bit too much credit here, but... There's so much in this movie where, and I, I think a majority of you probably saw this movie last year. Did you all kind of get the feeling that this was like a live action strange world at times from Disney? Yeah. <laughs> well, that's what House said, right? I mean, like, I, I already mentioned crazy. that. Oh you, oh, you did? <laughs> yeah. Oh, I'm sorry. My bad. I must have missed that part. <laughs> I still haven't seen Strange World, so I'll just have to take your word for it. Yeah. And Matt, you're not crazy, man. This is this. I literally was looking at some other audience members after the film, and we were like, was that similar to Star Wars? I mean, it totally is. There's a cantina scene. You're introduced to all these different creatures and aliens and cultures, and they try to do all this world building that I did not feel that the runtime was sufficient enough to really get this off the ground for us to care about these newly introduced characters. Um, I did like... William Jackson Harper as this telepath. I thought he was actually quite amusing, but there's just not enough of him. And Katie O'Brien, there's also just not enough of her. Like, I have no investment in these characters. And by the end of this movie, they're treating it like it's this war epic. And I don't know about you all, but I just wasn't buying into that. I was more concerned about what was going to happen with Scott Lang and Cassie because they definitely leverage Cassie as a weak point for Scott in this movie to push him forward, to motivate him. And there was a part of me that was wondering, oh, to establish Kang as a big bad villain, is he going to murder someone close to Scott Lang? Because that would be... I think, a great introduction for this character. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Got your happy price, Priceline. Yeah, it's also kind of strange to ask the audience to have, you know, the emotional through line that this movie be his daughter. And now this is the third actor we've seen play this part. So that's kind of removes a little bit of the attachment we might have to this character because it's just another person just standing there. And I don't think the movie sells enough of the emotional stakes to really make me care. But also, you know, there's a lot of people like myself who are just not bought in at this point and are kind of just going to it's going to take a lot to get us to care, which is maybe not fair to the movie because it's a huge hurdle to overcome, obviously. And that has happened recently. I quite like Eternals to somebody else's points, but I don't know. It just didn't. It, it, I was kind of just bored by a lot of those actual human moments. Here's what I want to know. Cody, you say it's going to take a lot to get you to care again. How it? I want to know. Thirty-one films in. What's it going to take to get you to not care finally about one of these movies? <laughs> I feel like the limits are being pushed right first, now. Hey, first of all, how dare you? Whoa. <laughs> first of all, personal attack. Uh, but also, uh, I, caring is not exactly the word I would use. Truly, um, I, I enjoyed this film, but I one hundred percent don't care. Like. 
what it feels like right now is is Marvel, Kevin Feige, whoever you want to point to, is begging us to care about the bigger picture. Um, like that's why they can't stop talking about how every film changes the changes the universe forever or mm-hmm. sets up sets up this and sets up that and. I don't get that from watching Quantumania. See, I think it's actually the opposite. I think that Quantumania is bending over backwards in its second half to do exactly just that. My problem is with the grander MCU overall at this point. Think back to when the MCU was kind of at its height. There were these standalone films that act as introduction uh, films with beginning, middles, and ends for the characters. And then maybe... Maybe there was a scene in the movie, just one scene, but most of them were reserved for these post-credit scenes, and those would be used to set up the next film or tease us to an introduction of a new character. They weren't woven directly into their two-hour runtimes, and it just feels like I'm watching trailers, Mm -hmm. which are going to get me to the next trailer, which is going to get me to the next trailer. Mm-hmm. I want to see complete stories at this yeah. point with character arcs. I'm tired of setup and payoff. Because you want to know something? There is no payoff. Yeah, if you think about Thanos, yes, he was teased for a long time, for sure. Like, what what, what was it? Like, four movies he appeared in before Infinity War, Multiple. I think. And they were in the post-credit scenes. Right, right, right. That that's the that's the thing, is that was a long setup, but they didn't give us movies to give us pieces of his arc here and there. They just teased him a little bit here and there until they gave us his movie. And so now I, I worry that, you know, we already see well, I don't want to get it. Are we getting into spoilers? I don't know. No, no, we'll have we'll have a section for spoilers. I'm just tired of them teasing. I think exactly what you said is right. Like, this is just a trailer for the next thing. And I, I just want them to actually commit to telling a good story. Uh, and, and for me, that's what I think they did with Black Panther. Black Panther felt rightly mm-hmm. uh, s- small scale might not be the right word, but contained, I suppose. With the exception of the Julia Louis-Dreyfus and Martin Freeman scenes. Yes, which... Sets up Thunderbolts. Right. Totally. Right, exactly. Yeah. So it's like, at least with that film, it's nearly three hours long. And how much of the runtime is devoted to that? It's not a huge chunk, but I can forgive it for that. Here, this is a large chunk of the runtime, which is basically saying, hey, Kang is the new villain. You're going to see more of him. Here's an introduction to his backstory. And I don't mind that so much. But at the same time, I'm wondering, why weren't we immediately setting up Kang as soon as Avengers Endgame was over. I think we this hyper serialized... We didn't, we didn't get breathing room. We got all these television shows and they released three movies a year. We got the I breathing think... room of not introducing Kang immediately, but that's not to say that we didn't get some of Kang's backstory already in the, at the end of the Loki. So that's kind of my pushback there of like, this isn't fully dedicated to his entire backstory. But we already got the variant version of that to set up some of these stakes. Is there anyone here that has not seen Loki? I've seen Loki, unfortunately. I've seen it. (laughs) Oh, you have? Okay. All right, all right. I was just curious because I've been told by a bunch of people that you don't need to watch the Disney Plus shows to know what's going on in the movies per se, but more and more I am starting to feel like I think I need to be watching these shows. That's the only reason I watch them. It feels like homework. Yeah, 
So um, speaking of breathing room, like the only reason we've gotten breathing room lately is because of COVID. Like the, that was the only time we got off from this assignment, which is the Marvel Cinematic Universe. And I think this hyper serialized storytelling is the key to a lot of criticisms for not just this movie, but a lot of their movies. I think the reasons the visuals look so, sorry, dog shit is because it's A, not the focus and B, they know they don't have to worry about making a beautiful piece of art because they've manufactured this like desire from the audience to only care about story and you see that bleed over into lots of other areas of art like critiques about like you see it even coming down to like this stupid fucking sex scene debate we have every year where it's like it doesn't push the story forward it's like not everything in a movie has to but marvel has trained audiences to only want things that push the not just plot of the movie you're in but the overarching plot forward and there's just it's just really unartful in that way and just not using filmmaking for like the reason it was invented. I know I'm being kind of like grandiose here, but these are the biggest movies in the world. And I think they should be held accountable for that. There is one sequence in this movie where Ant-Man goes subatomic to achieve a goal for Kang in exchange for Cassie. And I thought that sequence was at least from a creative standpoint, had some very, um, it had some very interesting ideas visually that I thought were some of the more well-executed moments in the movie, just in terms of, you know, kind of providing us with some Doctor Strange-esque trippy visuals. You know what I mean? Sure, but it also kind of just looked bad. And, like, I can applaud the inventiveness of the designs. Like I said, the creature designs in the Quantum Realm are pretty good, but the execution is just awful. So it's like, you know, one step forward, one step back. And the crazy thing about it, uh, Cody, is when you brought up the idea that essentially we are at a position where it is the Marvel machine. Even when you go back to Phase 4 with projects like Shang-Chi or even Black Widow, which I wasn't a big fan of Black Widow, but at least that was a film that still continued to do pretty much the one thing that I always find myself coming back to these Marvel films for. Not the action, not the visuals, not the setup, but the characters. This film, while it's totally banking on what we loved in the past of these characters, but there are really no arcs and no type of stakes or journeys that we're starting to see these characters that truly invest me as much. I mean, it's kind of sad that I find myself more invested into Janet and to Kang than the actual main character of Ant-Man or Cassie themselves. I mean, there's a reason why some people are talking about, oh, we don't get the Wasp, because the Wasp is not an interesting character. I'm sorry. I, I like Evangeline Lilly as an actress going back to the days of Lost, but I'm sorry. She's not an interesting character as much. No, she's only ever featured as either an antagonist to Scott in the first film, who then eventually becomes a love interest, and then even in Ant-Man and the Wasp, I never really still felt like... Like, they came close because of her connection to Janet. Yes. Here, there are moments where I, I kind of feel like they are just scratching the surface of giving her something more to do in her relationship with her mother. But more of those moments, I think, are afforded to Michelle Pfeiffer yeah. to showcase her talents a bit more, which I appreciate. I'm glad that Michelle Pfeiffer is getting a chance to make up for uh, some lost time here, considering that she was barely in the second film, wasn't in the first film at all. Mm -hmm. uh, so I'm glad that we're getting more Michelle Pfeiffer here. But at the same time, I agree there is an imbalance uh, with the focus on these characters and you can say that at this point maybe scott lang doesn't need that because he's already had 
two full movies dedicated towards his character, plus other appearances in the other Marvel films. So maybe we can't afford to give some of these other characters uh, their due. But I I don't know. Something was off about it because you're right. The emotional investment for me wasn't there this time around. Other than um, the Kang storyline, which had a level of intrigue because of, I believe, Howard, you were the one that said this before, um, or somebody said it. Jonathan Majors just brings a lot of gravitas to this role uh, that makes him such a commanding and intriguing on-screen presence that you want to know more about this character and you want to see what he's going to do next because he is so new. And I'm not saying that it's like an unpredictable performance, like that's going to keep you on your toes necessarily, but because it is fresh and something different, uh, that was exciting. Yeah. And, and the thing about Jonathan majors is he's an actor, right? Like he's a real actor. And when you compare what he's doing in quantum mania, quantum mania, there are definitely great moments, like I said, uh, but also, uh, he was better in the end of Loki season one. Um, you know, you, you, he moves from in, in Loki, he was just his big scene is just a really extended conversation. There's no fights. There's no craziness. It's mm-hmm. just them talking for like a 45 minute episode. Um, and it's so it's good yet. because Jonathan Majors is such a phenomenal actor. Um, mm-hmm. Whereas here he still has moments to shine, but it it, it moves him into this more uh, trying to be intimidating through visual effects and through crazy fight scenes and it is less effective um so they they kind of took what was so good about his character in loki and just shifted it i know it's it's a different character it's not the same thing whatever whatever <laughs> i care. It is a variant and I, know. I think i like that we get to see a different side of him like that i love the fact that he was treated like the he who must not be named for the first half of the movie. Because when he does step up and like Scott meets him for the first time, like he conquers that scene. He is completely intimidating. And I that's what makes him such a unique villain that we are going to see moving forward. That we're going to see all these different sides to what makes Kang terrifying, whether it is just a 45-minute conversation in Loki versus what we saw in Quantumanium and moving forward like that that has me excited and it also is going to it shows why the creative team at Marvel pushed to have Jonathan Majors in this role because we're going to see so many different sides to him as an actor and that's fun for me. I mean, it's fun. Yes, I agree. And it's a great showcase for majors to show his versatility. My concern with this is if you're giving distinct performances each time this character shows up, because let's face it, the way that he plays his role in Loki is vastly different than the way that he plays the role here. If it's going to be that different each time, is anybody worried that the character itself could become diluted unless if there's really, really strong connective writing to tie them all together, because I I just worry that there won't be consistency, not in terms of his abilities as an actor, but consistency in terms of, oh, this is all the same guy. Not as much, because um, even though I won't go into it, because we're going to talk about it later, the uh, the post credit scene. Uh, which mm-hmm. for me was a way better ending than the actual ending of the film, was able to remind me 
why did I find myself invested into this character within Loki and the show Loki and uh, that 40 minutes that we see him basically seeing stealing the Shire uh, episode. And to Meredith's point, while I'm not really big into the whole multiverse thing, which is kind of sad because I'm, I think phase five is the multiverse saga phase forever. Um, Marvel, there is an intimidating factor that, okay, from a writing perspective, if this guy is going to be the hyped up Avengers level threat, what is it different about him other than Thanos that we should be concerned about? And there was an intimidating factor that I found with the idea that, oh, my God, there are multiple versions of this character. And it kind of reminds me of that, like that split personality in way schizophrenic type of aspect that you don't want to meet the side that is the dark side of him, or you don't want to know this other version of him. There's there's a, there's a mysterical factor that I do find with that character. So just kind of cycling through here for a minute in terms of going through these characters, uh, what did we think about Michelle Pfeiffer here as Janet and Michael Douglas uh, returning back, of course, as Hank Pym? I was going to say, I thought Michelle Pfeiffer was actually doing a pretty decent job. You know, it's nice when I watch these Marvel movies with these like pro actors and like these elder statements, statesman actors who just, you know, have been the base of Hollywood for 40 years now or so. I feel a little bad for them, which I shouldn't. They are getting humongous checks for this work. And I was so I was watching Michelle Pfeiffer and I kind of thought maybe she wouldn't necessarily phone it in per se, but she's definitely giving it some juice, which is appreciated because she has to sell a lot of the backstory and you know the best scene in the movie i think is the one where we see her and jonathan majors in the past and it's just two great actors working together and it's just that's to me thrilling to watch um i will say i do think her character was kind of annoyingly cryptic like i don't know why they yes. wrote her i don't know why they wrote her to be like yeah. i'll tell you about it later or like i don't want to talk about that or like just just it, follow me you're not helping the situation so you're annoying character exactly <laughs> It was very inconvenient screenwriting uh, that they had to write in a way that was convenient for them. Yes. It just – it was really frustrating. It was so transparent and that was like the way that they wanted to keep the audience invested. But it was just frustrating. And on the at the same time, the other characters, the Michael Douglas and Evangeline Lilly characters are – not trusting her like they're not believing her when she's saying like come this way and they're like why it's like she was already down here listen to her like i know she's not giving you all the information but you should just blindly be following her so that that kind of uh, duality of writing was really frustrating to watch most of my issues with this movie have nothing to do with the performers it has to do with the writing and the balancing of who gets character development, who gets screen time, mm -hmm. that sort of thing. It, it, the, the performers themselves, even Catherine Newton, who I've seen getting you know some criticism on here lately, I think she's perfectly serviceable. She's not extraordinary, nothing like that at all. She doesn't need to be, in my opinion. Mm -hmm. um, but I've I've I keep hearing people saying that she's a bad actress. She's oh been good God, no! I disagree with that. Like, bro, yeah. watch Three Billboards, watch Big Little Lies. I mean, even her small role in Lady Bird is incredible. I mean, I I don't think it's a performance issue. I mean, I agree, she's serviceable, she's fine. I just thought she was miscast, and that's has nothing to do with her. She's just doing her job. Well, what did you feel that the role needed that she wasn't able to bring to it? Chemistry. 
Ah, okay. She had no chemistry with, uh, and like what I'm, and this is not me trying to be rude. I felt more chemistry with the actress who played Cassie in Avengers Endgame within that two minute scene than this entire film. And again, that's also due to some of the writing because she does come off as this cliche teenager who's rebellious and getting in trouble. We first see her in jail and it's uh, it's not just within her, man, but it's also within Scott and Evangel in like a um, hope to where I don't buy these two as a love relationship thing. I don't buy it. I mean, I bought it a little bit with Ant-Man and uh, The Wasp, the second film, but where is the disconnect? And I think it's not just with Captain Newton. It's not just with Evangeline Lilly. I think it also has to deal with the direction. I agree with that. I think because of this script and what it did to Scott and Hope's character in particular, a certain moment that happens at the end of the third act doesn't hit as strong as it could have because of how much time they're kind of spent apart in the movie itself. So, Speaking of uh, elder statesmen, we do get Bill Murray for one scene in this film. Oh, God. Perfectly fine with one scene. But he's just, like, he's playing like an old perv, essentially. I did not, like... It did nothing for me. It wasn't funny. It wasn't exciting. It's like, okay, here's Bill Murray, and he's an old flame of Janet from the her time down there. And that's it. His character does not do anything for the rest of the movie. He never shows up again. To me, it was very pointless. It's Bill Murray just playing Bill Murray, who's giving exposition of... Like, his character serves as, like, this representative exposition that okay yeah janet she has a dark past and there's a rebellion and all that type of stuff but it's very very underutilized to a point where it, it, like like well, okay where are we going with this yeah i think that's perfectly fine to only have i did not want bill murray to overstay his welcome honestly so i did think for what he was there to do he did it just fine in fact i really enjoyed kind of the back and forth that he had with michael douglas if we could have had more (laughs) of krylar i would have taken more of them going back and forth honestly more than like the pervy jokes or whatever so Mm -hmm. but that's what the back and forth was over it was about oh i fucked your girl you know like what like oh i i slept with your woman what are you gonna do about that huh now that we're face to face, because that's what that was. Then Michael Douglas would throw him a glaring look. That was the back and forth. I was really hoping that they would go with the uh, a grandmaster like um, uh, that they did with uh, Thor Ragnarok, where with Jeff Goldblum, where they would just go like full out zany insane with this character. But they don't, and he's just there for one scene. And look, I'm not the type of guy who says. Oh, X actor was wasted. For me, actors serve characters. That's just my rule when it comes to watching films. But it did feel like a waste of the character and of Bill Murray most of the time when you look at the marketing of this film and like kind of where they were going with his character. I don't think it's a spoiler to say Corey Stoll returns to the franchise as Darren Cross now reintroduced as Modoc, that's been revealed. What I didn't know, uh, heading into this movie, because I because I saw the floating head thing, but with the the mask, the helmet, whatever you want to call it, 
What I didn't know was I didn't know that when that came off and we actually saw a blown up, stretched out version of Corey Stoll's face on this thing. I did not know it was going to look that hideous. Do you know that movie, the uh, David Lynch movie, Inland Empire? There's like one moment where Laura Dern's face is just like blown up and it's one of the scariest things I've ever seen in my life. It kind of reminded me of that. Um, and I I wasn't quite sure what I was supposed to think about it because I was mm-hmm. laughing in kind of just like what in like almost a resigned way of like what is happening here. But at the same time, so many of the other characters in the movie, the CGI characters look terrible. So I'm like, am I supposed to be laughing at how ridiculous and bad this looks? Or is this like just supposed to be a, a funny thing or not funny at all? Because like later they want you him to actually have some pathos, which is completely unearned. It just, it was mystifying. I had the exact same experience, Cody. When it first appeared on screen, I thought it was hilarious because of how awful it looked and ridiculous. But the other characters, the characters in the film seemed genuinely concerned or like they didn't seem to acknowledge how ridiculous right. <laughs> no 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 it's not no in fact it's the opposite yeah they're terrified of him because he's right. supposed to be like this assassin uh bounty hunter a uh, gun for hire and he's good at his job at killing on behalf of kang right and so we're supposed to take him seriously and then when the reveal happens and he's nothing but a punchline he's a joke that was a huge problem. Yeah, mm-hmm. and, and that's the thing. It, if it had just been a joke the whole time, I think that could have been really successful because it it is inherently ridiculous. Um, and and eventually, yeah, the the film takes a turn to where you're clearly supposed to laugh and like the ending. Yes, there's supposed to be pathos, like Cody said, but there's you are supposed to find it funny, and it was kind of funny. Uh, but it was just a weird turn where the movie didn't know, didn't make it clear to the audience whether or not we were supposed to laugh or be afraid or whatever. I found it really interesting. It's sometimes it's weird seeing these films at a press screening. Um, like for me here in Vegas, I was watching this movie with five other people in the theater. So there's no like audience engagement. And so I couldn't tell like how this would be with an audience. Did, did your guys's audiences laugh when he first came on screen? Oh, yeah. Yes. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. But I could tell because let's face it, I live in New York and we're all a bunch of pricks. Uh, <laughs> I could tell that it was not we're laughing with you. It was we are laughing at you because mm-hmm. this just looks really mm. ridiculous. Mm. Uh, OK, I'm sorry. I, I didn't like it. They should have kept the mask on. I did not like it. OK, fine. Sure. There were some a few funny jokes, mostly due to the reactions of people like Ant-Man and and the Wasp. But then they also attempt to give him a character arc from the first film. And I'm sorry, but at this point, like Corey Stoll was not that memorable of a villain. I do not need this. I don't care about this. I have no investment whatsoever in one of the weakest villains that the MCU has ever produced. Facts. This this plot twist makes me go back to Iron Man 3 and say, perhaps I treated you too harshly because that looks that is a sixth sense level plot twist. Oh, I'm, good. <laughs> I'm sorry. That's how bad this plot twist is. A, the Trevor Slattery stuff from Iron Man 3 has always held up for me. So welcome to the party. B, <laughs> I appreciate that they kind of gave Corey Stoll and because Darren Cross is so weak. He is a weak villain and he really didn't have any kind of conflict with scott honestly all of his stuff was with 
Hank. So I like that there was actual reasons to be like, I hate that you're here because you sent me here in the first place. And to me, I think that some of his stuff with like Cassie, like how they basically changed each other's lives in that bedroom. Like I like that there was like that through line there and whether you feel like it was earned or not, that's your own prerogative. But to me, it, that made this feel more like a trilogy than solely setting up like phase five and being like, well, you've helped saved the day against Thanos. Here's your big movie. We still got to keep some of those elements. And it finally made Darren Cross work for me as opposed to when we had him in the first movie. I mean, I guess if you're invested in Darren Cross, I can't argue with your points, but I'm not invested and I just felt it was completely unnecessary and just like also once again too, just going back to the presentation of the character is also a problem. So for me, it was just a big fat. No, God, I'm almost done going through like cycling through these characters here. Uh, did you guys like the William Jackson Harper, Katie O'Brien? Oh, and a uh, David Dasmalchian as Veb, the slime creature. <laughs> that was great. They were easily the funniest. Yeah. One of the funniest parts about the film. Yeah, the slime creature was the best one in the in the film, for sure. I did like Veb, yeah. But once again, I couldn't help but think of those Strange World comparisons. To the point that I started wondering, given that they're both Disney productions, like, was there any crossover whatsoever in terms of the art department or something? Well, they've just got multiverse on the brain. You see it across, like, so many of their properties, and it's just kind of what's trendy right now. Not even just in Marvel, just in general. And so World Within Worlds is the name of the game at Disney, and to me, that's it's just exhausting. Now, Hollywood took the wrong lessons from Into the Spider-Verse when that came out, as far as making things so much about the multiverse now but at the same time it allows creativity to come out in different ways which my big issue with phase four has been like the lack of connectivity towards now that this is the multiverse saga we should be seeing that and they didn't do that as much in phase four it was more about ptsd and tra- and trauma which also needed after endgame but it's interesting what they're doing at Disney. Like, yeah, did they just re- have the strange new world people and Quantumania and even Star Wars people too, with like the volume because they use that to film Quantumania. There's like Star Wars sensibilities there. And I believe Peyton Reed directed a couple episodes of Mandalorian. So like you see the flavors of that there. That's a good question, actually. Uh, now that we're talking about this, do we feel that Peyton Reed was well-equipped and ready to take on such a big jump within the Ant-Man franchise because I've always felt like the first two Ant-Mans were perfectly okay because of their small scale, because of the fact that they weren't that visual effects heavy as much as some of the other ones were in terms of the environments. Uh, Do we think a different director should have stepped in at this point? Because I do feel that this movie is lacking identity and granted that's been a problem for the mcu in general but at least with lately i think some of the directors that have come forward like ryan coogler or chloe Zhao, um i feel like there has been if anything more of a clash in styles in terms of what feige wants and what the director wants but peyton reed is very clearly not visually distinctive doesn't really bring a single singular element to it and is i think just 
uh, a director for hire for Kevin Feige. I mean, he's kind of earned his right to make this movie because, like mm-hmm. we said, he did the first two Ant-Men, Ants-Men, I don't know, and <laughs> The Mandalorian and did well enough with those. But we've made this point before. This is not a new point. I think what makes the first two so special to people, and I don't really like those movies, but what sets them apart is their small scale, like literally in terms of the size of the characters and the size of the story. It mostly takes place with one smaller villain. It's not a multiverse thing. There's not time travel. There's not worlds collapsing within worlds. And I'm not saying the movies for the the Ant-Man movies can't move beyond that, but they didn't capture anything special to like put in place of what made the first two so distinctive. Not just with Peyton Reed, but I I think it most of our issue most of my issues with this film goes beyond Kate Peyton Reed. It's more just about the mapping trajectory of the direction of where the overall MCU is going as a whole. It's, it, we we look at this like as if it's a like a television show when you're watching a season. And yeah, you can have highlight episodes within some parts of a season but you don't necessarily blame the specific episodes as a whole you blame where the direction of the season is going within the series and i think that this season within marvel has just really weird mediocre direction and that if even affects movies like ant-man quantumania because i agree with i agree like peyton reed i think he was qualified to do this he knows these characters it's just I feel like there's there's more variables in order for you to do the equation more than just Peyton Reed. Okay, so what I want to do at this point is I do want to get over to final thoughts. Anything that we didn't touch on or something you want to reiterate, Daniel Howitt, we can kick it over to you first. Um, what it, what are your some of your final thoughts? And then after we get through this, we can then head over to spoilers. Do you think when they came up with the title Quantum Mania, they they knew consciously that the word Ant Man, the words Ant Man were included in the word or do you think that was a happy accident i i think that was the one moment that surprised me in the film that was i I went oh uh (laughs) (laughs) i I think that they were brainstorming and they said we need something that sounds big something large we can't call it ant-man and the wasp in the quantum realm and then it was probably like wrestlemania season and someone was like quantum mania (laughs) yeah and and then i think later on they were like guys wait Ant-Man is in the world. Yeah. Um, anyway. Uh, don't don't <laughs> they make a joke at one point? I can't remember if it was the second film or this one where one of them says, do you guys just put the word quantum in front of everything? <laughs> That's, <laughs> That's true. Much what they do. That's true. Um, yeah, I I think this movie's fine. I, I really do. Like, uh, I don't deny any any of the problems that any of you have with this film. Like, uh, yeah, it's it, it's a pretty ugly movie. It's not super inventive. Um, there's there's a lot of convenient storytelling that's inconvenient to the audience. Um, it, it, so yeah, I, I've got a lot of uh, a lot of problems with this movie, but also um, it was fine for what it is. It's it's entertaining enough. It's not remotely one of the best uh, Marvel movies. Quite the opposite. Uh, it's definitely definitely low on uh, my ranking of Marvel films. But I still was entertained. There are lots of problems that I have with this movie, one of which we didn't discuss, which is how how do they arrive at the decision to take out the the fan favorite character of Michael Pena? I mean, that just seems like I really hope that was Michael Pena's decision, because I don't understand how 
how Peyton Reed or Kevin Feige or whoever made this decision says, hmm, you know what character everybody unanimously loves? Michael Pena. Let's make sure he's not in this movie. And it's not like there aren't scenes in this movie that don't take place within the quantum realm. Right. Before that, after that. Honestly, put him in the quantum realm. Do you know how much more entertaining this movie would be uh, if he was in the quantum realm? Imagine Michael Pena's character interacting with MODOK. Now, that is funny. So, uh, <laughs> I mean, you have David Dosmalshian playing a different character as uh, lending his voiceover. Right. Why couldn't we have Michael Pena playing an alien-like creature with voice? Sure, sure, totally. Uh, yeah, I just don't understand. that. That's kind of emblematic of, of some of the choices in this movie that just don't make sense. It's like, I'm not sure how we landed here. But again... As many problems as I have with this film, fine. Matt can roast me for being being an easy mark with Marvel movies. That's fine. Um, but I do think there's something uh, about the machine of it that they they do know how to make a, a, a genuinely entertaining movie. So I was entertained despite my problems with it. I still had a fine time with it. Uh, and I don't remember it very much. Uh, I do. The other thing I was going to say in final thoughts is that I think Disney's going to have some very interesting soul searching going on. We're already seeing, you know, how they're, they're shifting around all their dates. And I, I, it really does feel like they're finally embracing the idea that superhero fatigue is real. And so I, I let's at least give credit where credit's due. Like, good. That's, that's what they should realize. But it's fascinating that they've had some of their worst critical reviews or critical reception uh, in the last 18 months. But also, they might win an acting Oscar in the next month. Like, what a weird time it is to be at Marvel, I feel like. Um, but regardless, I think this movie is fine, if not great. I think there's a very easy solve to all of this, and that is you just need to tell self-contained stories that bring audiences on a journey from beginning, middle, and end. And then if you want to do a setup for your next film, you stick it in one of those two or three or however many post credit scenes you want to do. That will get people, I think, back on board. But devoting large chunks of your runtime towards, stay tuned for the next thing that we do. Aren't you all excited for what we have up our sleeve? It's not working. That's where the fatigue is set again. People are still okay with superhero movies. They, you don't even have to call them superhero movies. Superhero films have all these different branches which can tell other types of stories. Like the way how Black Panther was in many ways borrowing inspiration from Hamlet and, you know, The Lion King, which, well, also borrows inspiration from Hamlet. Anyway, my point being is that you can riff on the superhero origin story or up the stakes in your second film to make it a bit better than what came before. But by the time you get to a third film, you kind of start, you do need to start kind of wrapping things up a little bit or at least introduce a new dynamic that's going to reinvent the character, push it forward. That's what made something like Thor Ragnarok very exciting for people at the time. And if you're not going to do that and you're going to just simply keep telling, here is a preview of what is to come, well, you're kind of telling us not to care about any of these movies until we get to whatever that one that is coming is. And in this case, it's uh, Kang the Dynasty, whatever it's called. What's it called again? Kang, Kang Dynasty. Dynasty. Yeah. 
Yeah, that's essentially what they're telling you is they're telling you this is all set up for this. This is the one that you all should care about. And I'm sure people will still show up for it. But I guarantee you if they keep this up, they're going to see diminishing returns at the box office. And this critical reception is going to continue. That I can wholeheartedly promise. Anything else, Daniel? Nope. Okay, uh, let's hear next from Cody Derricks. Cody, final thoughts? Anything you want to reiterate? I'm just tired. Um, you know, <laughs> I'm going to keep watching these movies. Call it Stockholm Syndrome, I guess. Call it lack, call it, you know, FOMO, <laughs> fear of missing out. I just have to watch them. And like I said, I will do the homework of the Marvel TV shows. So I can hear a lot of people saying, just don't watch them if you don't like them so much. I My, my brain does not allow me to do that. <laughs> and I feel like a lot of people feel the same way. That being said, it's it's fine. The movie's not good, but it's, again, it's not so bad that I can be mad at it. It's not like Thor. What was the last Thor called? God, God's a Love and Thunder. Love and Thunder. I don't know. Love and Thunder. Sorry, no, I genuinely could not remember the, name of the movie. <laughs> that movie was not a lot of love, and it didn't bring the thunder for Cody. No, did not like it very much at all. But it's it's just it just exists, and we're all gonna go see it, and it's gonna make a hundred million dollars, you know, this weekend, and that's just the way it is. I. One one thing I got to bring up, I may have been nuts and the movie was so dark that it was hard to tell. But I swear to God, there were some scenes where I could see green screen reflection on actors faces. And I asked the friends I saw it with afterwards if they thought the same thing and they also thought the same thing. So I don't know. Maybe I'm just seeing things. But I do think that there is a lot of colors in somebody's backgrounds, right? There's mixtures of purples and blues and sure. reds and greens and oranges. So I do wonder if that does have something to do with. Um, maybe there was some lighting reflectiveness that was green, but I, Cody, I'm telling you the way that I hear that Marvel visual effects people are treated within the industry. I would not be surprised if there's a flub or two in there. Right. That's the thing is like, I, you know, these are the biggest movies in the world. Disney's the biggest entertainment company in the world. This should not be something I'm questioning. It should not even be a question, but I swear to God, I saw a green screen reflection. Maybe I'm going crazy, but if if that is true, it's just so indicative of the slapdash way these movies are pieced together. And Disney knows it does not matter. They can do that and they will still make a hundred million dollars opening weekend. So yeah, that's just I'm 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 just tired. <laughs> just to bookend this, I'm just tired. I do wonder, like I said before, because I do believe that the box office results are gonna continue to be diminished somewhat. I wonder if there is a breaking point because even if they are going down, like they don't outgross the previous film, there might, there has to, I imagine there has to come a point where they go, okay, this continues to keep going down and we're still making say over $500 million worldwide. But at what point do they go, all right, this is a problem. (laughs) You know what I mean? I think the bubble will burst eventually, but at the same time, like, until there's a f- outright flop, I don't think they care. You know, like the checks keep rolling I, in. I, I think these movies are impossible to flop. I, I and I disagree that they don't care. I think I think we're seeing it right now. Um, I, I, yes, as long as they make money, that's that's their top priority more than critical reception. But I don't think it's a coincidence that this movie is getting poor reviews and then they pushed like three of their shows that were scheduled for this year to next year. They Mm -hmm. pushed the Marvels from July to November, uh, presumably kicking out another movie. I don't know what else was scheduled after that, but like they, they bumped a ton of stuff. So I, I do think we're seeing them realize, yeah, maybe audiences are getting a little burnt out on, on our content. 
So I hope so. You know what? I don't mind if they and I know they're probably never going to do this because we live in a capitalist society where you always have to up the ante and do year over year profits. But man, just go back to giving us one two max Marvel films a year because I think three is just too much. I think what could happen is something akin to Star Wars where they were saying they're going to release a Star Wars movie every year and it's been almost five years since we got a Star Wars mm-hmm. movie where people could just say like enough and it just it just I don't think it'll get reduced down as severely as Star Wars. It's just too big to fail at this point. But the, I hope you're right, Howard. I hope there is some reflection going on because, oh, my God, please. Well, yeah. And and the thing is that, the, of course, these movies are all going to still make a profit. But when Marvel has been so big and every movie was almost grossing a billion dollars, even when these movies gross, you know, 600 million or, or whatever, uh, that's kind of seen as a as a loss to them. You know, so I, I do think that when these movies don't do quite as well, it does hit them in their pocketbooks, even though they're profitable, if that makes sense. I can just hope that they don't take the wrong lessons from it, which is, again, what I think Star Wars did, as we saw with Rise of Skywalker. It really bent to the worst bad faith criticisms of the last movie, and I just hope that's not the case. Like, I worry looking at something like She-Hulk, which I thought was fine, and it didn't blow me away, but it had such a toxic reaction online from the very people who was skewering, and I really just hope that they don't bend to that will. Okay, let's balance it out here with some positives. Meredith, final thoughts, anything you want to reiterate? Yeah, there was a point made earlier that I wanted to go back to of some of the stuff between uh, Scott and Cassie in particular. Um, as much criticism that there is for uh, Catherine Newton stepping into the role, which I also do agree. I think the actress from Endgame should have been the one to carry on as Cassie uh, for the brief scene that they had together. And also I love when Marvel takes lesser known actors that they have been doing in phase four and um, giving them their big shot, you know, seeing like Amon Bellani come in as Miss Marvel. And I'm so excited for her to make her big screen debut in the Marvels in November, like seeing these like up and coming talent. That's where I think Marvel really shines. Having said all of that, I do buy into the chemistry between her and Paul Rudd, even though I think a lot of it is on Paul Rudd's side um, because he is just that charismatic and great with anybody he's on screen with. I have been loving Paul Rudd since Clueless, so I'm biased there. But the scene that gets to me, and this is where I think Scott still shines in this movie, is when before he goes down into the like probability storm to grab that thing for Kang, he, you know, hugs her and says, like, none of this is your fault. I'm you are not a mistake in my life. And he says, I love you, Peanut. That complete that ties right back into everything that Scott has done in the Ant-Man movies has always been about Cassie. And seeing that and seeing the way that like he was not afraid to threaten Kang when he said, like, you will not touch my daughter again. That really drew something out of me. And that is where I still saw a character in an Ant-Man movie that I did have problems with for all of the reasons that y'all have said, you know, from visuals to the lack of Michael Pena, these are my favorite characters. So I cannot excuse the Michael Pena erasure in this movie. And even some of like the stuff between like Scott and Hope, 
that fell short, but then we got Michelle Pfeiffer. We got Jonathan Majors. We got some really good uh, humorous moments with uh, William Jackson Harper's character and Veb. And it still managed to make me enjoy this movie on second watch and even enjoying it a bit more seeing it. I really like how ridiculous Modoc looks. The whole character design. It's very much like Cassie saying in the first movie when she gets that ugly, creepy bunny doll. It's so ugly. I love it. That is Modoc to me. He's so ugly. I love it. And I do like the way that they tied in his character to this trilogy and, you know, tying a nice bow on it in a way that I really wasn't expecting. So final thoughts on Marvel. Phase four, I love in a lot of ways. I am also an Eternals truther, so I will always defend that movie. I think my biggest problem with phase four was they were too disconnected, that we couldn't see the roadmap of where is this phase is going, where are these movies and shows doing. I like that we are seeing Feige and co self-reflect and seeing changing around release dates that they are seeing the effects of fatigue and that they're able to adapt. That is what brought around phase two, honestly. Phase two was really messy if you go back and look at it, but it had some high points. And to me, for the season premiere of phase five, it was serviceable. It inspired more confidence in me moving forward than it had even after they released their slate at Comic-Con last year of we're heading to Secret Wars, which at the time I was like, I don't know how you're going to do that because there's a lot of room in between. But they set up their big bad in a way that I feel like is meaningful. They brought back the importance of the mid-credit and post-credit scene, which we can talk about in a second. Like, that is where Marvel has always, like, that is how they have reinvented serializing these movies. And, and with that vote of confidence of seeing that, and because I have so many issues with the phase four post-credit scenes, they were just so meaningless. This is where I feel like we know where we're heading. Just trust us a little bit longer. And there will always be an audience for this. I am always going to show up and watch a Marvel movie. If that makes me an easy mark against Matt, so be it as well. Um, I will show up for these things and there will always be an audience for it. Whether the critics and whether the returns will match that quality of what they had during phase three, I don't know. I don't know what the future holds, but I've been in 5D, I trust for this long. That is where I stand. I'm not your enemy, Meredith. I want to clear Vier on that. <laughs> well, the way that you were saying that to Daniel, I felt like I had to say that too. Like, I don't think we're enemies here. There will be times where we will agree <laughs> and there will be times where we will be on opposite sides. And these movies are going to, like, as Cody said, they're going to just keep coming. So Matt, you're my enemy. Yeah. To quote the Joker, I think you and I are just destined to do this forever. So just get used to it. Uh, Isaiah, final thoughts. Anything you want to reiterate? Some final thoughts. Um, William Jackson Harper, I think, is hysterical in this film. The whole like reading your thoughts and minds offer some of the best comedy. There's this one 
exchange that he has with basically this starship trooper like soldier where he guesses like a password and it had me and my audience roaring with laughter essentially man everybody no pun intended has their dynasty i mean you go within television shows like lost sports like golden state warriors and patriots and even artists like everybody has their prime i think the mcu is out of their prime as of right now and this introduction to this new season of the multiverse saga i believe that's what it's called phase five i think was just fine there was a time where i was very excited for the mcu and even avengers endgame was in my top five best films of that year. Now I'm starting to slowly but surely feel a bit of pessimism with these films. Uh, Ant-Man specifically, the quantum realm, I'm sorry, quantum mania is a fine film that left me feeling entertained enough. I love what they did with Kang. I love what they did with Janet. I think everything of course with Jonathan majors and Michelle Pfeiffer is really great juicy stuff in which I'm just thinking to myself, you guys are in a way better movie than what I'm watching right now. We we haven't really talked too much about this. I have a very high standard when it comes to action films. Action is my first love. It's a expression of storytelling that I think is very vibrant and colorful. Uh, And of course, with the MCU, with projects like the Winter Soldier, Infinity War, even Shang-Chi, uh, they thrive in those areas. I think this film, uh, it, I wouldn't say lacking, but it's not as imaginative or creative. The best set piece of this movie is this very brutal, like, hand-to-hand combat exchange between Ant-Man and um, Kang that I thought was very entertaining. Kind of gave us a little bit of a quick preview of Jonathan Major's boxing skills that we'll see in Creed later on. But uh, other than that, it's, it was it was okay. It was well shot, I guess. It wasn't like overly edited and it wasn't boring, but it was even to a point where you see Kang just going just complete ape shit on these people and just vaporize them, them War of the World style. It, it's, it just didn't really feel as... It, it, it didn't feel as kinetic in a sense. And overall, this movie is it's just a fine, OK, entertaining film that passes the time. But my investment into the MCU and, and it's, it saddens me to say this because I love the MCU is starting to go downward into this twilight zone abyss of averageness. And hopefully uh, things will start to get brighter into the future. Okay, my final thoughts here. Uh, seven holes. That was a joke at one point. That was funny. That worked. Yeah, I like I like that he had to take a moment to actually think. Wait, are there seven? And then we all did the same thing. It was funny. <laughs> yep, yep, exactly. <laughs> I counted. There are indeed seven. <laughs> uh, the line reading of "Holy shit, that guy looks like he's broccoli." <laughs> Even though I kind of thought just overall the creature design in this movie. I found all of it to be very lacking because didn't you all feel like for the quantum realm, we should have seen something that was more distinct and unlike 
anything else that we had ever seen before when really what I felt like we were getting were creatures that stepped directly out of a Star Wars universe. That's what I'm saying. It just looks like Guardians of the Galaxy. Like, it just looks like they took unrealized locations from other movies. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> guys, I got to ask. Did anyone here see Black Adam? Absolutely not. <laughs> I, I no, did, and I, I don't remember problem. a moment from it. Do you remember at the end of the movie where the kid gives, like, a rousing speech to get all of the common folk to fight against the uh, skeletons? Do you remember this moment in Black Adam? Vaguely. That's what Cassie's speech was at the end of this movie to the people of the quantum realm. You weren't roused, Matt? You weren't – you didn't want to storm the Bastille? No, absolutely not. <laughs> I was trying to understand what it was that she was saying that all of a sudden got everyone to band together. And it just – I did not buy it whatsoever. Completely unbelievable to me. A lot of my final thoughts here are spoilers, so I will save them for that. I don't think I have anything else really to add other than to say – like you, Cody, I'm tired, and I don't want to beat a dead horse. I don't want to sound like a broken record, so let's just get into the spoiler territory. And this is the main thing I'm going to start off with here. I've been dying to talk about this this entire review. Every day, we rise, challenging ourselves to work for what we believe in. At U.S. Border Patrol, protecting our borders is more than a job. It's a calling. Agents answer the call, working together to keep our country and communities safe. If you are ready for a new mission, join U.S. Border Patrol and go beyond. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. I think Jonathan Majors does a great job as Kang. For the life of me, I do not understand the creative choice to have him lose at the end of this movie. It makes absolutely no sense. It completely diminishes his power. It completely diminishes the threat of him. And if you want to tell me, oh, but there's another variant of him that's stronger, bullshit concept does not work within film. I'm sorry, you need to abandon that shit immediately. He needed to win or he needed to make the other characters suffer. Scott and Hope get stuck in the quantum realm. And I was like, okay, there's some consequence here. They they both do lose, as Scott says. But then they immediately get out. So where are the stakes and what is the point? I agree that there's a lack of stakes. However, I don't have a problem with Kang, quote unquote, losing. Honestly, if he can lose to Ant-Man, why is he a threat then to the other powerful Avengers? All right, so hear me out. Hear me out here. First of all, technically... He doesn't lose because this is another issue that I have with the film, like the whole Ant-Man saying, oh, oh, wait, did I actually win? Are there other Kangs out there? Did I just have everybody else killed? Like, there's that issue where you have to where like, OK, did he really win or did he really lose? And I think that it kind of reminds me in a sense of because a lot of people were making the comparisons to Thanos about. Oh, Thanos, when we first saw Thanos, he lost. In a sense, not really. No, he didn't. He won at the end of Infinity War. No, 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 no. Well, um, no, I'm, I'm talking about with the idea that Thanos, when, he, when we first saw Thanos, we saw a sense of failure with him in the post credit scene of the Avengers and him that sending— That doesn't count. No, but here's the thing, though. Even if that doesn't count, then why the heck is Thanos opening with a speech in Infinity War saying, I know what it's like to lose? But th 
that's a post credit scene. This is an hour chunk of a movie dedicated towards setting up this character, giving him character development, establishing his power, showing that all these people are afraid of him, telling us that he has conquered all these galaxies and all these worlds, and he loses to little old Ant-Man. I, well, never kill the little guy. <laughs> That's the name of his memoir. So that I'm gonna shout. I did like the part where he uh, got called out for listening to his own book in the car. That was pretty. Oh, funny. that was funny. <laughs> and Hank listened to read the whole thing. That was so great. I laughed when he said, "I read every goddamn line of it, or whatever." Yeah, that was good. I'm gonna say something brave. I really did not care about what your this this issue you have matt it did not bother me at all i think the thing <laughs> at the end maybe i was just so turned off at that point but i was just kind of like uh, by the, the thing that comatose it's okay i was thinking about the train ride home um but um sorry i'm being i'm, I'm i really wasn't i'm being glib but whatever um but the the <laughs> thing that they have ant-man doing ant-man the, the 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 character doing is that the 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 moment where he's saying did i really win is there another kang that was like interesting enough and compelling enough of a cliffhanger that I was actually kind of surprised at how effective that was for me. And I, I, that was enough for me. I did like it because all of a sudden the tension starts ramp ramping up and I did think, Oh, is there going to be a gotcha moment here for Kang where he does have the last laugh before the credits roll. Mm-hmm. But instead Scott kind of like snaps out of it and says, eh, nah, 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 we're, we're all good. And then it ends on like this stupid joke moment with yeah. the cake and then the credits roll, and I was like, that was weird. And then I was thinking this end credit sequence better blow me away right now because that was such a weak-ass ending to the movie. Yeah. They immediately follow up the stakes, though, of that question. Did I actually doom all of these people with, here is the Kang dynasty. Here yeah, are I, all I the like other Kangs. That was a good one. But but I'm sorry, but didn't you feel like, uh, well, no, I shouldn't ask it in that way because clearly you didn't feel this way. But seeing all of these different Kangs in this council-like chamber, st- once again, straight out of the Star Wars prequels, it felt like. <laughs> but, um, there were some in there that I was looking at it like, this feels like a bad comedy sketch. Because some of these are really ridiculous. I'm sure there are even some Easter eggs in the background that are like little wink, wink, nudge, nudges for fans or just something that's completely ridiculous that one day will freeze frame and get a good laugh out of it. But I did not get the feeling of this guy is still a threat. Uh Oh, watch out for him. I'm excited to see what happens now in the next one as a result of whatever this is. And chalk it up maybe to my lack of understanding of the comics. But. I didn't really get an overriding sense of, oh boy, here we go. Oh man, I did. Especially seeing the Pharaoh Kang one in particular that ties into Moon Knight and all of like the mythology and God structures within the MCU. You're seeing all these different Kangs that they're loose now because of the because of what Sylvie does to He Who Remains at the end of Loki season one mm-hmm. to and King the Conqueror is still alive. You know, he is just in a smaller he's in a smaller state in the quantum realm. And like, who is to say we won't see him again? But if he was just one who saw the end, we still have all of these other ones that I feel the threat from them. And that's exciting. 
Well, I can tell you right now, the one that's presented here, I don't care because they've established, they've shown to me that in a fist fight against Thor, he loses. Because if he can just go toe to toe or barely win against Ant-Man, what are we doing here? I think what makes the aspect of it, like I said earlier, intimidating is the mysterical aspect that you okay this is the multiverse is insane when it comes to this franchise but one of the things that i appreciate about it is that you see this room full of these different versions of kang i'm really confident some more powerful than the others so why should i care about the less powerful ones then tell me that why should i give a shit no, you, you, don't have to, well, you don't have to care about it. I don't necessarily care about all of them. I'm caring about the idea that, okay, if there is a true, like, universal, multiverse, multiple versions and variants of Kang, then there is something. It's kind of like the split factor. What is the one threat that you do truly do not want to encounter or unleash the beast of. And I think that they hinted that very well, not only within the post credit scene, but also when you see Janet, when she touches that one artifact, that little uh, MacGuffin, whatever it was, that ball, and you see of all course. of those worlds that he destroys, I'm like, okay, something's bigger. They're hinting to something. All right, I get so it. So is what you're alluding to, Isaiah, this this actual all-powerful being that we should be afraid of? Yes. Is that the same character as what's introduced here, or is it a different character? I think there's, like I said, there is a split personality schizophrenic aspect to this where I feel like that is actually one of the better writing aspects about this film and oh, I, I think it's one of the weakest aspects because once again I just I'm questioning if you're telling me to care about this version then why should I care about this inferior version can anyone answer this for me I think it comes down to like I, I all I could do Matt is explain to you how it worked for me I understand I that. can't necessarily tell you how it doesn't work for you now if it doesn't work for you I respect that because I do see where you're coming from because essentially the movie did not do the best job at setting everything up from a writing perspective. But I think that post credit scene, it just worked for me because I do feel like I do feel like this twilight zone, like, oh, my God, we're about to go into an abyss of different versions and how the 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 sky's the limit at a certain point but i do get why it didn't work for you matt all you have to do is just not care about any of this that's that that <laughs> solves all your problems but to your point cody it ain't going away and people are going to care and people are going to talk about it and at the end of the day i kind of care a little bit about media literacy oh absolutely and th there is a depressing angle to how these movies are received where i i just saw the cinema score i think it got a b so like clearly these issues we have are not issues that the general public is sharing. And that is depressing as somebody who loves film and also as a critic who would like to, you know, maintain this art form I love at the very best level it can. Mm -hmm. But, you know, at a certain point, I just kind of have to like check out. <laughs> I'm sorry. It's just, I'm going to keep watching them like we keep saying, but I just cannot care anymore because the films have not given me reason to care in three years. How? What about you? I, I I genuinely don't know how you feel about this in terms of Kang's setup and, you know, the promise of him in the future and does it matter? Does it not matter? Et cetera, et cetera. Um, it's funny because you know I'm, 
what the second most positive person on this interview on on this review. Um, but I also side completely with Cody with what he just said. Like, um, I liked the movie and also I don't care, <laughs> you know, like, uh, I, I don't really care that deeply about the, the, uh, I agree with what you're saying, Matt. Like, um, it was very strange for him to lose the end of this. Um, and, but I still roll my eyes at the whole, all the different variants and how this is a different character than in Loki. I thought Kang was, well, he who remains was great in Loki. I thought it was so good. And then here I love Jonathan Major's performance, but as far as like, you know, the stakes of this villain, I know I, I, I just, I don't, I don't care. I, I still enjoyed the film and also I don't care. Um, it's, it's a very strange dynamic. We're going to break you at some point, Howard, I promise. Oh, <laughs> uh, I've, I've been broken a long time ago, Matt. Um, I, I think, I think that's the whole thing is it's just kind of like, I, I'm enjoying these movies. Uh, well, some of them, I mean, I, I genuinely loved Black Panther, uh, Wakanda forever, but, um, with this one, I'm enjoying it at a surface level. Absolutely. When we dig into it, I haven't actually said a lot of positive things on this review, um, despite still leaving the theater and thinking, yeah, that was that was that was enjoyable enough. Um, so I do feel like I'm in this weird liminal space of of enjoying something that I also am pointing out a lot of things that I didn't like about. OK, my final uh, spoiler thought here, and we kind of alluded to this a little earlier, but. Giving Darren Cross this character arc with him not being a dick at the end, I didn't know if I was supposed to take it seriously or laugh, both. Just a tonal confusion, I felt like. I've been he watching... was threatening his daughter's life two scenes before. It made no sense. Yeah, It, it, it did not work. I, I think it was supposed to be funny, but again, like everything else with that character, I don't know. So, whatever. <laughs> Matt, I've been A1 since day one with this franchise been watching it for over a decade i have never ever rolled my eyes harder during an mcu film than that i was so so annoyed especially because i wanted one of the main characters like janet or michael douglas or even cassie if they were going to go dark and really set up kang to be truly the most heinous villain in all of the MCU. Mm -hmm. I was hoping he would kill off somebody. And instead we got this as our climactic death seed. And then they have the gall to say, Hey, we want you to be emotional for this moment. I did not walk away feeling emotional from his death. Okay. Let's be clear. Like that was <laughs> ridiculous. Like him saying, I'm dying in Avenger. I'm like, you know what? whatever but then it is meant to be taken as a joke then yeah but you can't I... have it both ways though i mean what are you gonna do like come on like i think the mcu true kind of i made a comparison uh with um the mcu with uh, the fast and furious franchise and how fast and furious franchise they're really well known for their zany action and of course the, the mcu is known a lot for their comedic relief their levity like the car Tarzan swing with Fast Nine, I think this film with Madoc, Madu, Matu, Moto, Moto, whatever his name is. <laughs> I think, oh my gosh, I think that they truly crossed the line 
with that character. Okay, yes, yeah, sure. I may have chuckled a few times, but that's also due to the influence of audiences. That can happen to us. We'll chuckle with audiences, but when we're at home, we're just like, oh, wait, this is not really that funny. And sure, Paul Rudd has some pretty funny reactions. The whole arm hand joke was pretty funny. But no, it, it just did not work for me. I'm sorry, it didn't. Okay. Um, final Final point here for spoilers. What do you all think of the big giant ants swarming at the end? There's a strength in numbers. I appreciate that. Yeah. And I like the tie-in to, like, you know, the whole concept of Ant-Man from the first movie. Ants are ridiculous. Like, that is your power. You know, you shrink to the size of the ants and you can control ants. You know? Ridiculous. But... For Hank Pym not to have a lot of things happening and to be made fun of a couple times throughout uh, by Krylar and by Janet of like, you just really love your aunts to see them kind of like come Mm -hmm. through like that. I do like that as a message, you know, of they may be small, but like they are mighty when they come together. And even... the scene of Scott, like in the probability storm, when all of the Scots come together, that's very much like how ants operate, you know, mm-hmm. how they build their own bridges and stuff. That was so cool to have that thematically there. So I agree with all of this. Uh, yeah. My only complaint is I would have preferred if the ants took out the Kang red shirts or blue shirts, whatever you want to call them in this but not Kang himself. I had real issue with this guy is supposed to be so all powerful and he can't stop these ants, like vaporize them. I I just, I come on. So that was my, that was my only hiccup there. It's also my least favorite thing in any superhero movie or blockbuster. When there's just faceless hordes of henchmen, um, because it allows you to have zero stakes um, because a villain literally, can, they're all faceless. They're literally faceless, <laughs> uh, or ants. We get one giant face to make up for all of them. Yeah, they're <laughs> literally storms. They're so literally it just, yeah, it, it bothers, it bothers me. Um, I, I, because you just, you can, the heroes can kill a thousand of them and it, and it means nothing. Um, so it, that kind of felt the same way about the ants. It was kind of like, I don't know. It was, it was. Sweet, I guess, but I agree with you, Matt. Like taking out Kang, it it yeah, didn't work for me. It would have worked better if we had like an Anthony character like we did in the first Ant Man, if we had at least one ant that had a name or something. Or if you had Michael Pena riding one of the ants, I would have bought uh, that more so than anything. The power of this character. <laughs> that would have been wait, incredible. I'm totally being silly. I'm not being serious. Wait, hold on. I'm sorry. Y'all saying taking out Kang as if, like, Kang died. I mean, it's, it's not like the guy died. I mean, it, it, all they did was buy him some time. Like it Isaiah, was- he's supposed to be this all-powerful, intimidating. We're all supposed to fear him for multiple movies moving forward, and he gets trampled upon by ants. Tell me. <laughs> Tell me how you feel about Kang walking out of this movie. Is he a character to fear? I don't like when Matt yells. This is yeah, scary. I'm me. scared. Calm down. <laughs> I think, Matt, I think you're taking this way too seriously. Yeah. <laughs> well, <laughs> I mean, bro, my man was literally stomped. Final grades out of 10, and then you'll see how serious I am here. Um, I'm giving this movie, upon reflection and a lot of deep, <laughs> introspective thought, 
I'm going with a three out of ten. I was actually a four. Wow. When I first started. This <laughs> I've gotten angrier and angrier the longer this has gone on. So that's where I am. Cody, what about you? Four. Okay. How it? When I left the theater, I'm going to be honest with you. I, I rated it a seven out of ten. Um, but definitely, the more I've thought about it over the past couple weeks, like I, I think. I think I'm a, a, a week six. I can't deny that I still enjoyed it. So, like, I am positive overall. But, yeah, I think a six is about right for me. Okay. Isaiah? I'm with uh, Daniel. I'm at a week six. It's not the worst MCU film. Unlike Thor The Dark World, it's not boring. But it's definitely bottom-tier MCU. Meredith? Yeah, after two watches, I'm still holding strong on a seven out of ten for me. Like, it still works. I may have written my review in a, in the vein of a six but honestly i i still enjoy it so it's a seven it's a seven out of ten for me all right any oscar potential for ant-man and the wasp i know every time we do one of these we always discuss visual effects can it make the short list things like that what do you all think here are you guys gonna be ready for uh the the campaign for jonathan majors for a supporting actor <laughs> uh because nah. it's <laughs> People are going to say people are going to try to make it happen. Hey, this and Creed are going to help him with magazine dreams. And I'm okay with that. Yeah. Mark my words. Of course, when it comes to the visual effects, MCU films have a great track record with getting nominated. Obviously not winning, but getting nominated. I think Guardians, given how the previous Guardians films got nominated and that previous Ant-Man films didn't, not even the first Ant-Man film could get in, even though it did very well with precursors. I think they're going to prioritize Guardians, but mark my words, I don't care what you think about the visual effects, this is making the shortlist. It will. If Black wow. Widow, one of the ugliest films I've seen from the MCU, can make the shortlist, this will too. Well, keep in mind, that was during the pandemic year where the competition was very, very slim. And this past year, uh, if I remember correctly, did Thor Love and Thunder miss the shortlist? Yes, it I believe did, so. It missed. But you it also made the makeup list. multiple other MCU films that also made it, too. Yeah, but in the end, Doctor Strange did not get the final nomination. Black Panther oh, yeah. did. Um, which, yeah, I agree, Isaiah. Like, these films do tend to pop up in the best visual effects uh, department. I will say this for the MCU looking forward at the roadmap ahead. There's a lot of goodwill with the guardians franchise and there's a lot of goodwill. I think right now with James Gunn, if that movie can stick the landing and send him out and that franchise or that MIDI franchise out on a high note. um, I think that has the potential chance to be the most well-reviewed and best shot Marvel has this year at getting in Mm -hmm. this based on the reviews and the lack of enthusiasm from people, I don't even see the visual effects society or really anyone in the industry going to bat hard enough for this to even make the short list. The Marvel movies that get nominated for visual effects versus the ones that don't usually it's a case of them nominating, like what's regarded as, you know, this is subjective, but like the best movies or movie yes. that came out that year from Marvel where like last in 2021, I would say the best visual effects for a Marvel movie were pretty clearly Eternals, but Spider-Man and Shang-Chi got the nominations and those were like the better regarded films. And you don't really see them nominating the lesser Marvels like the neither of the two A-Mans got in. I don't think the second Avengers movie got in. So because this movie is I don't want to make any grand assumptions, but I assume not going to be as well regarded as Guardians. I don't think it's going to make the visual effects final five. 
you also have um, Miss Marvel or the Marvels that are that's coming out too. And I, here's what I'll, I'll let me rephrase what I said. If <laughs> Miss, if the Marvels is a really big surprise of a film, because of course it's coming out in November, you're getting closer to award season with that. I can see Ant Man missing the short list, but as of right now. I would not be surprised in any way, shape, or form if this makes the short list. I don't care how bad the reviews are. Honestly, it, it, it just makes sense for me. My question, uh, I don't know the answer. Uh, I'm wondering if three three Marvel movies have ever made the VisFX shortlist in the same year. My my hunch would be no, but I don't have I don't have it pulled up in front of me. And Last year, all four Marvel movies made it in yes. to the shortlist. And okay. technically, if even though they weren't owned by Disney and the MCU, but going back to 2014, technically three Marvel films did get nominated for visual effects, but I don't think that's probably going to happen this year. Gotcha. All right. Well, well then what I was about to say is irrelevant then, but uh, yeah, I mean, I think guardians feels, even if it's not quite as highly reviewed or, or regarded as the, the first two films, it feels pretty much assured to be on the short list and probably get a nomination. And then, yeah, like Isaiah was saying with the, the Marvels being closer to award season, uh, that's just in a better position. Um, so yeah, I, I there's, there's, there are zero chance that Ant-Man Quantumania is nominated for a single Oscar. It's just not, it's just not happening. So end of yeah, discussion. Okay. Uh, well, I'll do it here for our review of Ant-Man and the Wasp quantum mania. I'm sorry that I yelled. Please accept my apology. <laughs> I, I, I'm not mad. I'm just disappointed. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> All right. Isaiah Washington, tell everyone that's listening right now where they can find you on the internet. You can find me at Izabod, I-Z-A-B-O-D 13, capital I, on Twitter. Meredith Loftus? You can find me on Twitter and Letterboxd at Meredith Loftus. Cody Derricks. I'm on Twitter, Letterboxd, and Instagram at CodyMonster91. Daniel Howitt. You can find more of my disappointment on Twitter at HowittDK. And you can find me at Next Best Picture. Thank you so much, everyone, for listening to our review of Ant-Man and the Wasp Quantum Mania here on the Next Best Picture podcast. We are proud to be part of the Evergreen Podcast Network, and you can subscribe to us anywhere where you subscribe to podcasts. Be sure to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts and let us know what you think of the show. We really appreciate your feedback and your support, which you can also lend on over at Patreon. For $1 minimum a month, you'll get some exclusive podcast content from us. Thank you so much for listening as always, and we will see you all next time. Christina Yerling Biro, host of the podcast Pop Culture Confidential. Join me as I go way behind the scenes with some of the most influential people in entertainment and media. 
Hear actors such as Succession's Brian Cox talk about his favorite characters to play. There always has to be a mystery. The audience have to be in a situation where they want to know what's going on. Meet studio execs like Pixar chief Pete Docter and learn his secret on how he makes us cry. Emotion is our first language. And so many others who are defining popular culture, from Obama speechwriter David Litt to Top Chef host Padma Lakshmi. We don't often think about food politically, or we don't want to, but it really is. Join me. Search for Pop Culture Confidential wherever you get your podcasts.